Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, hello, and thank you for joining me Monday, December 4th. I hope you had a lovely weekend. And for those of you who worked over the weekend, thank you so much for doing that and allowing the rest of us uh, to live a Monday through Friday work life. We wouldn't be able to do it without you. And um, I recognize that working weekends frequently sucks, and I appreciate the people who do it. Uh, well, you know, oh, God, do I, am I going to jinx myself if I dare to say the week is starting off a little bit on the slow side? Though, you know, honestly, we've gotten so used to so much upheaval on a daily basis. Today is actually a pretty, uh, pretty busy day as far as what's going on. You may have heard about this letter that was sent by the director of the Office of Management and Budget, a woman by the name of Shalanda Young. She sent it to um, Mike Johnson. She sent it to Hakeem Jeffries. She sent it to Chuck Schumer. She sent it to Mitch McConnell. And uh, the letter is about two pages, pretty much single space. But let me let me share the highlights with you. I want this is paragraph two. I want to be clear without congressional action. By the end of the year, we will run out of resources to procure more weapons and equipment for Ukraine and to provide equipment from U.S. military stocks. There is no magical pot of funding available to meet this moment. We are out of money and nearly out of time. She goes on to write that cutting off the flow of U.S. weapons and equipment will kneecap Ukraine on the battlefield, not only putting at risk their gains, but increasing the likelihood of Russian military victories. She said already our packages of security assistance have become smaller and the deliveries of aid more limited. If our assistance stops, it will cause significant issues for Ukraine, While our allies around the world have stepped up to do more, U.S. support is critical and cannot be replicated by others. And she goes on and on and on and talks about what has been done, what needs to be done, what's supposed to be on the books. And she ends it with um, three sentences. We're out of money to support Ukraine in this fight. This is not a next year problem. The time to help a democratic Ukraine fight against Russian aggression is right now. It is time for Congress to act. Yes, she sent the letter to the two Senate leaders and to Hakeem Jeffries, but um The main recipient, the person identified as in, you know, dear so-and-so, I'm sending you this letter, is Mike Johnson. And there's a very important reason for that, is because the stumbling block right now 
to getting Ukraine the aid we have promised and keeping that pipeline open, the main stumbling block is the Republican Congress. Uh, There are those among the farthest right who have somehow in their wisdom decided that supporting Israel is okay, but supporting Ukraine is um, something that we really need to talk about. This is becoming... This is becoming such a talking point among Republicans that I'm wondering if they're giving this idea a test drive to see how the public reacts, to see if it could possibly be a divisive issue they could use as uh, many of them run for re-election in 2024. Almost like a litmus test, if you will. Well, let's let's do this. Let's talk about this. And we'll do it in a way that, yeah, it gets the word out, but not in a way that really endangers us. And we'll just see what, if any, reaction we get to. If we get blowback, okay, then we can, like, do it and pretend we never said we weren't going to do it. But if we find that this is an idea, you know, we don't have abortion anymore. We need something else to get people angry. And maybe, just maybe, aid to Ukraine can be that wedge issue. This is what I think is going on. (sighs) Responding to this letter, um, House Speaker Mike Johnson said that it's really the Biden administration's fault. What? What's that you say, Mike? But it is the Republicans in your very own party in Congress who are saying no to this. So how, how, how is that Joe Biden's fault? Well, let me explain it to you. Uh, it's Joe Biden's fault because he has failed to make those Republicans happy. See how that goes? Do you see how that goes? Because, you know, uh, the far, far, farthest right... They have questions about the strategy, and they have questions about accountability. Strategy, like it's like Joe Biden. Joe Biden may be single-handedly holding the Western countries together, Mm, but strategy... It's like when people get mad at him because he's not doing more about the invasion of Gaza, as if the Israeli military is under his control. Oh, Biden should be calling for this and and he should insist on this. Yeah. Well, if it was the United States, he could do all those things. As it is, even though we are very closely allied culturally And financially, with Israel, we don't really get to tell Benjamin Netanyahu what to do. You know, if we say jump, Bibi, the chances that Bibi will look at Joe Biden and say, how high? Slim and none. And slim left town. 
but um, they need people. Republicans need people to get angry uh, because when they get angry, they are more likely to vote Republican. And, you know, by God, the boogers in Congress, I'm not going to let them get away with this. But I think when it comes to the money for Ukraine, I think that they have picked another loser like they did with abortion. Um, when historians look back on this time, I think they are going to identify the Republican support for the repeal of Roe v. Wade as um, a real turning point. Certainly, they have encouraged young people to vote in numbers that seem to be increasing every election. And you know what? The vast majority of them ain't voting Republican. No, they're not. And uh, I think that this is another one of those deals where they think that people are going to say, well, you know, first of all, it's this is the argument that they're going to put out. Well, you know, if we didn't spend all this money in Ukraine, we could spend it on schools, except that's never going to happen. That would never happen. This is a part of the defense budget. If we don't spend this money on Ukraine, it's not going to go to make the roads better or the schools better. It's going to go just back in the defense budget. And it is such a teeny tiny itty bit of the defense budget that, frankly, our military isn't going to notice whether it's there or whether it's not. And, you know, our military is very much behind Ukraine. Our Military has worked with Ukraine. They've trained Ukraine. We had a long-standing relationship, not only with NATO, but with our allies in the region, and Ukraine was one of them. I mean, Malcolm Nance, who you hear all the time on Stephanie Miller, he spent so much time in Ukraine, you know, in training exercises and working alongside them, that when this conflict first started, he felt that he had an obligation to go to Ukraine and fight behind behind and beside the people he had been with when he was there in peacetime. And he did. I think he was there for six months. I think this is a real losing issue for Republicans. I absolutely do. But um, they're trying to make the most of it. Yeah, we're going to bring Biden to his knees. We're going to show those Ukrainians. Did you know some of them speak Russian? Oh, oh. This, I don't understand. If if somebody like me, who is um, not ever been in government, never held elected office, if I can see that this is a big losing issue for them, why can't they see that? If I could have seen and predicted that overturning Roe v. Wade was a losing issue, why couldn't they see that? See, here's the thing about Roe v. Wade. I don't think they ever thought the Supreme Court would actually do it. That's why I think that they chose, that's one of the reasons why that issue was so effective, because they could keep harping and keep complaining and keep whining and keep protesting. 
and yet not really have to worry about it. And then the Supreme Court pulled a fast one. It did exactly what they told it to do. (sighs) And yet, even though we have seen in recent elections people turning out in great numbers and people sending um, Republicans packing time after time after time, I do not want in any way, shape, or form to make you overconfident about Donald Trump. Lots of things can happen in an election. A lot of people believe that if Ralph Nader had just dropped out, that we would have had President Al Gore instead of President George Bush. And now we've got a bunch of Republican donors who think that their party is so far gone that there's no way to rein it back in again and uh, that that they have this idea that somehow no labels can be the new Republican Party. But they're going to muddy the waters. They're going to make they're going to try to make people think that they're independent when they are not. It is Republican money. It is Republican donors who are behind no labels. And, yeah, Joe Manchin is flirting with them. But let's face it, he's always been a Republican in Democratic clothing. There are other things that I wish to talk about this day, and I'd better get to a commercial break so we can get started on the rest of it right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. I just heard that ad for Total Dentistry. You know, um, once in a while we do segments with them, and uh, we've got one scheduled for this Wednesday at 3 o'clock. I want to... Once and for all, uh, get Dr. Anna to weigh in on this idea of amalgam fillings. You know, the silver, what we call silver. I don't know if how much silver is really in them. Um, but I've been reading, um, you know, for a while it was like, oh, my God, these fillings are terrible. Anybody who's got them has got to have them ripped out and have ceramic put in or porcelain or whatever the heck the white stuff is. And then there was this pushback. Now they're safe. They're fine. Whatever. And just recently I read an article that said that there's been a huge upswing in this country in uh, cases of Parkinson's. And the researchers were trying to figure out where the uptick is coming from. And they identified several possible causes But apparently one of the possible causes is exposure to mercury. And some people say that some of these amalgam fillings have small amounts of mercury. So we're going to talk to Dr. Anna Wednesday at 3 o'clock and have her um, share with us the latest thinking and the latest research. Um, One other thing that I said, uh, uh, other things that I wanted to, to talk about today... I said, just because Republicans have blown it when it comes to abortion, and I think they're about to blow it when it comes to support for Ukraine, that doesn't mean that we can sit back and put our feet up and rest assured that Donald Trump will not be the next president of the United States. Because of groups like No Labels and because of efforts by other people like Cornell West and RFK Jr. to try to pull off black votes, it is entirely possible 
it is entirely possible that we might get one of those weird, just like with Hillary Clinton, loses the vote but wins the presidency kind of elections. I know we have a system that is messed up and uh, it is going to take a lot of time and a lot of work to get rid of the Electoral College. I think both the effort, uh, even if it does have to take years, the effort is worthwhile. It is a system we have long outgrown. And it isn't right that a handful of people in the lesser populated states can basically decide who the president is. Because electorally, you know, uh, a Wyoming has the same weight as a California. So uh, it is a very real danger that Donald Trump finds a way to squeak into the presidency another time. You know, Liz Cheney, who was uh, drummed out of Congress and drummed out of the Republican Party for standing up to Trump, she has a new book out. She was uh, interviewed on the Today Show by Savannah Guthrie. And um, Savannah Guthrie asked her about this, asked her about the prospect of Donald Trump being president again and what that would mean for the country. Listen to this exchange. You've said we are sort of sleepwalking into dictatorship in the United States. Dictatorship. Is that what we would have if we reelect Donald Trump? I think it's it's a very, very real threat and concern. And and I don't say any of that lightly. And frankly, um, it's painful for me as someone who, you know, has spent her whole life in uh, Republican politics, who grew up as a Republican, to watch what's happening to my party uh, and, and to watch the extent to which Donald Trump himself um, has, uh, you know, basically determined that that uh, the only thing that matters is uh, him, his power, his success. And um, that is not somebody you can entrust with the power of the presidency. It seems crazy to ask this and even crazier to fathom it. But do you believe if Donald Trump were elected next year that he would try to stay in office beyond a second term? That he would never leave office? There's no question. You think he would try to stay in power forever? Absolutely. I mean, he's already done it once. And in fact, if you look at what he did in the run up to January 6th in terms of his pressure on the vice president not to count legitimate electoral votes, his pressure on the Department of Justice, on state officials, and then refusing to send help when the Capitol was under attack, um, he's already attempted to seize power. And he was stopped um, thankfully, and, and for the good of the nation and the republic. Uh, but, but he said he will do it again. He's expressed no remorse for what he did. And we have talked about how he has said repeatedly that he believes the executive branch of government should have more power than Congress or the judicial branch. Uh, and also he is going to gut every government agency, every single one, not only the political appointees, but he's going to get rid of the regular civil service employees and replace them with his cronies. That's going to be the uh, litmus test. Do you support Donald Trump? OK, you can get a job. Oh, you don't have to. You don't have the right degree. Pfft, that's OK. You, you meet the main criteria. You support me. He has also, again, 
repeatedly started talking about how he is going to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. You know, the act that allowed millions of people like me who were uninsurable to get insurance. When the big companies decide you've got a big pre-existing condition, the, in before times, they didn't have to give you health insurance at any price, at any price. He uh, has said that repeatedly to the point where uh, the Biden campaign has now come out with an an ad where they um, where it's just a pediatric nurse talking about her job and what she's seen and why getting rid of the Affordable Care Act would be such a horrible thing. I want you to listen to this ad right here. My name's Jody. I've been a pediatric nurse for 18 years. I love what I do, but we definitely need more support. The last administration's policies were so troubling, and our healthcare system has become a business, and people are becoming billionaires off the backs of sick people. I've seen the heartbreak when parents are trying to figure out how they're going to pay for a medicine to keep their kid healthy. But we are seeing lots of positive changes. And thanks to President Biden and Vice President Harris, families can afford medication now. The Biden administration lowered the cost of prescription drugs and passed laws to make health care more affordable. The idea that we could go back to the policies that help the rich get richer and left so many people behind. I don't want to go back. I can't go back. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. And uh, as one of those people who knows what it's like to be an adult and not to be able to have health insurance, I can assure you we do not want to go back to those bad old days. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with much, much more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade. And if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. The uh, fighting has resumed in Gaza. Um, the hostage release seems to be over if or maybe if we're lucky, just on hold. And um, it is not a situation that anybody, I believe, on any side of this feels good about. Uh, we're joined now by assistant professor of political science at Washington University in St. Louis, Carly Wayne. Um, Carly's area of research are things like terrorism, conflict, political violence, and Israel and Palestine, which makes Professor Wayne the perfect person to talk to <laughs> at this moment in time. Thank you for joining us so very much to talk to us about this situation. Were you surprised that the uh, ceasefire ended and the fighting resumed? Uh, no, unfortunately, I was I was not surprised. Um, I think this was um, Israel was saying that this was going to be temporary all along, and I think that uh, I took that at face value. Um, there are a lot of speculations about just the reason why it ended exactly when it did, and I'm happy to chat about that. But I think it's not 
necessarily surprising that fighting has has resumed. No, go ahead. Expound on that if you wouldn't mind. (laughs) Uh, Sure. Uh, I mean, so there was speculation that, uh, so as you know, Hamas released most of the women and children that it had uh, taken hostage on October 7th, um, but sort of the last round of female hostages that they were supposed to release, um, they ended up not providing a list of those names to to Israel, and that is the sort of stated reason by the Israelis. And I think now we actually just today got confirmation from the Americans as to why uh, that hostage uh, prisoner swap sort of broke down in the last stages of releasing the women hostages. Uh, the State Department spokesman, um, Matt Miller, actually just spoke earlier today. He was saying that uh, there may have been some concern from Hamas that the the women that they were going to release in the last part of the deal might have not had very good things to say, uh, to say the least, about their time in Hamas uh, captivity. And so there might have been a desire to sort of minimize bad press. Uh, okay. Quote, you take someone hostage um, by what we're learning in tiny amounts held in tunnels held mostly in darkness, told that they had to speak softly if they had to speak at all, not being given very much food, and, oh, we're not going to release you because we think you might complain about being taken hostage and not being treated well? Yeah, I mean, I think the the concern from the Americans and the Israelis about these remaining hostages is, of course, um, whether they were the victims of sexual violence during their time in, you know, in captivity or not. I mean, there is a mountain of evidence of sexual violence on October 7th, um, but so far in the hostages that have been released since, they have all reported, you know, obviously not being treated, you know, well in captivity, but not being, you know, assaulted further during their captivity. And I think there is concern that maybe the remaining hostages might not have that, that same report. I'm I'm kind of going to go off a little bit on a tangent. Of course, uh, the interview between Dana Bash and um, Congressperson uh, Jemiah Paul has gone viral. And, you know, Dana asking her about why is it so many progressive women don't seem to be um, so outraged about the rapes that took place. And the congresswoman answering sort of like, yes, rape's terrible. We know it's awful. It's horrible. And, but then there's always but. But. Right. I, and what I wish Dana Bash had said is I'm not saying right now that um, Benjamin Netanyahu was a great leader or that he may have led Israel into this or that he should be replaced or, you know, that the Palestinians haven't suffered But why is it when this particular incident seems to have inspired so many people to say, yes, it's awful, but when, you know, I can hate Netanyahu, I think he's a I think he's a terrible leader. I think the Palestinian people have have suffered greatly. But that doesn't mean I still can't say what happened, what these Hamas terrorists did, especially to these women is just so out of bounds and then to take their pictures and to post the videos mm-hmm. of their attack their sexual rapes and and the humiliation i can get outraged about that and you know what professor wayne i don't have to say but right uh yeah i mean i think this has been a lot of um 
uh, activist organizations in Israel, women's organizations have been sort of uh, rightly, I think, disappointed by the fact that so many of their um, activist colleagues around the world have sort of found it hard to draw this line, particular line in the sand, which should seem to be easy. Um, and and I, I think it is something that is very frustrating to say the least for for many in Israel, many liberals in Israel that sort of do not do not support the occupation, do not think that what this government is doing right are sort of aghast by um, the number of Palestinian casualties, even in this conflict, even if they recognize that that Hamas as an organization or they think Hamas as an organization shouldn't be allowed to continue to exist, um, are still very deeply critical of their government, but want the international community to also be able to say and sexual violence is horrible, period. Right. Period. With no, yeah. no follow up. No, no, no conflating it with anything else. I was very intrigued that one of your areas of research is terrorism. First of all, um, how do you research terrorism? What do you look at and look for? And what can you teach us? Uh, so thank you for asking. Uh, I always like an opportunity to chat about my research. So, um, so I do a lot of a lot of different things with respect to terrorism. First, I look about look at public opinion uh, with respect to terrorism. I've done some research on sort of the emotional responses of the mass public to witnessing terrorist violence. Um, I think there's this common assumption that one of the main reasons that uh, people respond so strongly to terrorism is that they are scared or terrified by it. And uh, a lot of my work seeks to interrogate that mechanism and, and ask if people are, are really, they might be scared, but they might also be very, very angry about it. And that anger might be triggering very different political attitudes, political preferences um, than if they were just scared. And so that's one sort of body of my work on terrorism. When you say when people see it, are you talking about actual, I was present on the ground and saw it happen or are we talking about, like, for most of us with 9-11, where the only way we saw it was on television? Um, and if you, if, you, if you learn about it secondhand via the media, does it have a different um, effect on people than if, say, somebody was at one of these uh, kibbutz and actually saw right. Hamas fighters walking around and killing people? Yeah, I think nat- naturally it does. Um, you know, uh the bottom line is for most people in the West and even even frankly in Israel, where obviously a much larger share of their population has direct exposure to terrorism, um, still a majority of Israeli society heard about these attacks on the news. Right. And so the news is a really powerful way through which uh, the majority of the mass public experiences terrorism. And so a lot of my work looks at, you know, how people respond to, you know, reported news of terrorism. But there are a lot of other scholars that look directly at like survivors of terrorism, people that live very close in very close proximity to terror attacks and, you know, the long-term post-traumatic stress associated with that. This may be <laughs> asking you uh, too much, but can you give us some idea of what inspires it? I mean, yeah, we've got the terrorism of Hamas here, but we've also seen Russia and Putin use terrorism as one of their weapons to wage war. So um, when Hamas does it and Putin does it, are there different motivations, do you think, different goals? So I would say also, first of all, yes, there are, you know, a wide array of, of political goals that motivate actors to be involved in terrorism. I also say that as scholars, you know, we tend to use terrorism a lot differently as a word than I think is often used in the media 
I think in the media, when people say terrorism, they mean it in a very normative sense. They mean like terrorism, meaning I think it's bad and this is the worst thing you could do. Um, in academia, we try to have a much more strict definition of what terrorism is, which is it is the use of political of violence for a political purpose um, against civilian populations by a non-state actor. And so we typically actually will not attribute terrorism to states. It doesn't mean that states are not doing horrible things. Um, states can arguably do things that are even maybe worse than terrorism. But we just we sort of definitionally restrict the, the use of the term Um and I think that's something that uh, you know, I always try to teach my students as well, because I noticed this this sort of trend where if we don't like it, we call it terrorism. If we like it, we don't call it terrorism. There's been this debate, for example, even in how we think about white nationalists versus jihadist violence, for example, and why one is labeled terrorism, but the other is not. Um, so just definitionally, in terms of how the public consumes this political violence, I think that is interesting. Um, so let me see if I understood the, like, that. I want to see if I understood yeah. that violence, uh, that definition. It's when um, not necessarily um, a government, but when somebody uses violence against civilians to, well, uses violence against civilians. Period. I was going to say like to make a point or to get for attention, some, but for some political for some political purpose. So we wouldn't call like a you know, robbing a bank and killing someone. We wouldn't call that terrorism because, you know, the purpose is ostensibly just, you know, money, right? I see. I I see. So if you bank robbers go into a bank and they shoot everybody and they rape some of the women, that's not terrorism, that's a bank robbery. But if it's... Right, the, it doesn't mean that it's not just as bad, right? It doesn't mean mm-hmm. it's not just something that we would morally condemn as strongly. We just as scholars sort of wouldn't call that terrorism because we don't see the politics there. I see. And when we add the politics in, is it, why is, why is terrorism a choice? Is it because it's attention getting? Because everybody sits up and take no, takes notice? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of potential reasons. Uh, one of the most, I think, discussed is this idea that terrorists, terrorists sort of by definition are groups that have pretty extreme preferences that are not supported by the majority of a population. And so, they are relatively weak actors, and if you're a relatively weak actor, um, you might be more attracted to the use of terrorism because it allows you a level of attention that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get. Uh, it's also a pretty easy tactic to use with, like, if you contrast terrorism with something like uh, militant action to try to gain and take territory or something, that's a lot more difficult, requires a lot more resources, organizational capacity. Uh, and many uh, groups that decide to use terrorism simply don't have that capacity. So it, it has often been referred to as this weapon of the weak. Ah, uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Um, you know, if you've got a very small group of people and you are trying to go up against a much larger force, obviously, you know, you're not going to take them head on. You're going to try to maximize the effect that your small numbers can have. And it, that would seem to make a lot of a lot of sense to me. I want to talk to you, too. Yeah. About, yeah. I, 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 I've got so much I want to talk to you about. I'm afraid to spend <laughs> too much time on any one topic. But I know one of your areas of research is Israel and Palestine. What uh, can you give us a synopsis of what you've studied? <laughs> 
Well, uh, giving a synopsis of any give, give any us a part of this really. of your career, would you? <laughs> sure, yeah, exactly. Um, well, I, I mean, a, a lot of my work has to do with uh, public perceptions of the conflict and support for, you know, militancy on the one hand versus diplomatic solutions to the conflict on the other. Uh, I've done some some work on. For example, if uh, amongst Israelis and Palestinians, if you frame, if you see this conflict as a religious conflict versus a uh, conflict over uh, land and uh, not like as a nationalist conflict, does this, is this associated with different political attitudes? And we find that indeed, like the, the people on both sides that sort of see this as a religious conflict, that see this as a Muslim versus Jewish conflict, tend to hold much more militant attitudes be much less likely to support, you know, any kind of diplomatic solution to the conflict. Uh, and so I think that that work in particular adds to a pretty large body of literature on the, the dangers of religious extremism in any kind of conflict context. Is that sort of circling back to the idea that if you are really a religious fanatic, you believe your way is the only way and anybody who doesn't follow your way is at best ignorant and is at worst a terrible person. And if they don't sort of get on board, then you, they, you might as well just get rid of them. Is that the kind of mindset that leads to this kind of religious extremism and the violence? Well, I mean, I think in this uh, in, in conflict context, when you're thinking about any kind of resolution or diplomatic solution, you're thinking about compromise over key issues. Uh, the ones in Israel are well-defined, right? Land, it's Jerusalem, it's refugees, it's, it's, it's things like that. Um, but if your uh, views on that land and on that territory are religious, are sacred to you, that you, you know, the entire land is like biblically given to you or... Um, you know, is Muslim land, on the other hand, um, then you're going to be very unlikely to see that territory as divisible in any way. And so that's naturally going to lead itself to, like, you know, more dogmatic views, less support for compromise, so on. Do you believe, after everything you've studied about uh, this particular area, that if we could get to a two-state solution, it might be something that could really bring about a lasting peace, or is that just wishful thinking? You know, I don't think anyone has a great deal of hope right now for this particular conflict. If I wanted to, so, and, and that extends to me, I'm not particularly hopeful about the short-term prospects for any kind of diplomatic solution to this conflict, particularly as, you know, Israeli society continues to become more religious and right-wing, and we've seen sort of some parallel trends with Hamas's ascendancy in Gaza over the past 10, 15, 20 years. Um, however, if you want to think about this as a potential moment of change, I think you could squint and say, well, perhaps the Israelis and Palestinians will realize after this conflict that, like, this is not sustainable, that this was such a in such a large amount of bloodshed in such a short period of time that if somehow Hamas is routed from power in Gaza and the Palestinians are reunited under a unified Palestinian authority and Netanyahu is imprisoned for corruption and we have a more centrist Israeli leadership, perhaps there'll be some momentum uh, for peace if, you know, you, the United States, if Joe Biden is reelected and all of the things sort of fall into place and Joe Biden wants to make this his, you know, new Oslo Accord moment and takes a 
a Palestinian authority that is now governing both territories and a centrist Israeli government and says, make peace. Um, maybe. Uh, but there's a lot of hurdles to overcome. Yeah, there were a lot of caveats there that you just ran <laughs> through. If this, if this, if this. Well, right. if you are very skeptical about a short-term or even near-term or long-term diplomatic solution, then you must suspect that this is just going to be a military solution. And what does that look like? I mean, does Israel walk away when the Gaza Strip is nothing but rubble? Yeah, I mean, to be clear, I do not think there is any kind of military solution um, to this conflict. And I think that is a mistake that uh, many senior politicians in Israel are making right now is to think that that is possible. Um, however, what I think is is likely to happen is that the, this conflict, this particular conflict will likely continue for at, at least a, a couple of months, perhaps. Um, Israel doesn't seem to show any inclination of, of stopping the war prematurely. Um, and then after that, they will probably stay in Gaza for some period of time before ideally transferring authority back back to the Palestinian Authority. And then I think we'll have sort of ceasefire for some period of time, and then, and then who knows? You mean sort of like an occupying force? I, I think they will likely stay in Gaza for a period of months. That it, It's not going to be weeks. It, it'll be at least months. Um, but I do think they don't—I don't think they want to stay in Gaza for years. I haven't seen— the leaders in Israel saying that, you know, you've seen some fringe elements in Israel saying things like that, but none of the leadership has said anything like that. Supposedly, the Biden administration and perhaps even Joe Biden in person were counseling Israel before they actually invaded Gaza, counseling them to make sure they knew what they wanted to accomplish and make <laughs> sure they knew what does victory look like? Make, you know, because it right. was sort of like, here's some of the things we did wrong when it came to Iraq and when it came to Afghanistan. Yeah. Please, please take our counsel. Don't do this <laughs> unless you know what you're doing. You know exactly what you want to accomplish and you'll know when it's over. Do you think Israel, I mean, because Netanyahu has uh, a lot of people have been complaining in Israel that he hasn't been uh, very transparent with the people of Israel mm -hmm. as to what's going on and what next steps are or pretty much anything. Do you think that message got through in any way, shape or form? You know, I don't I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't see I, I don't know if the message got through, but I don't see a lot of evidence of it. Um, it's not clear exactly what Israel's long-term plan is here. Um, they've started floating several different ideas, none of which seem to be particularly palatable to to anybody, like such as the establishing some kind of buffer zone in Gaza doesn't seem realistic. Um, to and, having and you mean like UN a, involved, like a DMZ. Back the remember when we had that? Well, yeah. you're probably too young to remember when we had that. Yes. Vietnam, no, but, yes. That but, that is sort. I mean, yes, they're sort of implying that they'd want like to like essentially make the habitable part of Gaza smaller, which is not going to be a solution that I think anyone in the international community would support. Um, and yeah, there is no real. I mean, there's no no discussion at all of a, any kind of political process after this. So I do think they're sort of still focused on 
sort of short-term tactical victories. And I think they might, you know, there's some evidence that they're sort of missing the forest for the trees at this point. Assuming that you and I are both still alive when this conflict does come to an end, uh, Israel has always, when they've been involved in any kind of big military action afterwards, they've done a deep investigation. What happened? Why did it happen? Did we, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? A lot of people seem to think that any investigation like that is going to be the political death of Benjamin Netanyahu. I think he's dead in the water regardless of an investigation and what it finds. But what do you think? Uh, I agree. Uh, I think that he is um, on very thin ice. It's very unlikely that he'll, he'll politically survive this conflict. Although I have also been wrong before. I have said that several times and I've never been right. So he really is a political survivor. Um, but I, I do think this is sort of the, the end of his his career as being the prime minister of Israel. Um, but I think that that's also particularly dangerous because if, if, if you, me, and everybody else agrees that the second this war is over, his time as prime minister is over, then Netanyahu might agree as well. And that presents some pretty difficult, um, or let's say, like not, not good political incentives for Netanyahu. If, if he does get the feeling that his political career is over, how might that change what he does right now? Would that make him more radical? You know, I'm going out anyway, might as well, you know, uh, do everything I, I want to do. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it gives some incentives to, you know, not have the conflict end or at the very least not have the conflict end without some like very major identifiable win. Um and I'm sort of unclear what that identifiable win would be. And so I am sort of concerned that he has an incentive to prolong the conflict. I would hope that his... Just to stay in power. And partners. Yeah, exactly. I would hope that the coalition partners would be able to sort of restrain that urge. Um, but, well, you know, it is a, a thorny dilemma. He does in many ways remind me of Donald Trump. And we saw Donald Trump... Uh, try to uh, implement a lot of different ideas to stay in power. I suppose continuing uh, conflict uh, certainly fits the bill as as one of those things. But um, I know that to be able to do this, he formed a coalition government with with some of the people who had up until that point opposed him. Could those folks step up and say, Bibi, it's time to go? Yeah, and I think that would be the the idea, right, is that if at a certain, at a certain point they would withdraw their support for the current emergency government. Um, the concern is, though, perhaps he could still form his narrow right-wing government that he had pre-war. Um, and, you know, those people are much more radical even than Netanyahu, and so that's something that I don't think almost He's, any outside observer wants to see happen. He is surrounding himself with Marjorie Taylor Greens and Matt Gates and Lauren <laughs> Boebert. Put it in the American context. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm really late to this party. But it just as a general news consumer, it seems to me that he has gotten more far right over time. Or maybe he always was and he just hit it better. What what do you see when you see Netanyahu? 
Yeah, that's the big question is like, to what extent are these sincerely held beliefs versus political mm-hmm. survivalism? Exactly. Um, <laughs> um, I, I think, and I think he has always been on the right of Israeli politics. You know, he was very prominently and famously against the Oslo Accords and at all of those anti-Rabin protests before Rabin's assassination and all of those things. Um, so I think to that extent, I mean, he's always been right-wing. Uh, but I think he has increasingly made concessions to the settler movement in Israel, the, the ones who want a you know greater Israel throughout the West Bank, in a way that, you know, he was not doing in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, and now he really is just like openly allowing this settlement movement to just, you know, explode. You know, for years on this show, I've um, I've sort of done an unofficial segment. Were they always crazy or did they just get <laughs> crazy later in life? People like Rudy Giuliani and and uh, former General Mike Flynn. Maybe um, I should do a segment. Are they really that radical or are they are they posturing because they think that's the group that's going to give them the most amount of support? Kind of still right. along those lines of because um, I think there are, I mean, I was there's a congressman by the name of Jeff Jackson who was a first time congressman and he was posting all these videos. And one of the most interesting was he was like, you know, all those people who say those outrageous things. He said, when you're in a meeting with them and the doors are closed and there's no cameras, she said, he said, you would be shocked at how normal they act and how they yeah. have normal discussions. But, you know, if the doors open and the cameras are there. All of a sudden, they it's like Jekyll and Hyde. They morph into this other right. person who's going to give the outrageous soundbite of the day. I think that there's yeah, a lot I more think, of I think that, that kind is, of... Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, we, like, even as political scientists, when we're doing research, I mean, we try not to rely on public speeches as, as uh, like, evidence of um, internal intent either. We, we love it when we can come across, you know, declassified private communications and, and things like that. Um, because they're just such better data, because we're not concerned as much about that sort of performative element of politician speech. That makes a lot of sense. I've never thought about it like that. But um, but, yeah, you know, like just like we saw with the Fox News, Fox cable hosts who were supporting Donald Trump. And when we read their emails and their texts and it was like they thought the guy was a moron and they hated him. And it was like, oh, my goodness, if I were a researcher, I would rely on that data much more so than what they were saying on television. <laughs> yeah. Professor Wayne, thank you so much for taking part of your day to talk to us about this. Very, very enlightening to hear about your research in this in these areas. Thank you for having me. Uh, Carly Wayne, prof- assistant professor in the political science department at Washington University in St. Louis. We are going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Take her away, in. Yeah, tickets are in. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> Joan Esposito. Whoa, that's an explosive sentence. On WCPT 820. We are very happy to welcome back to the program one of our favorite people. Spencer Critchley is here. His book is Patriots of Two Nations. His podcast is Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. Spencer, how are you? Hi, Joan. I'm just fine. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderfully well. Did you have a nice Thanksgiving? Yeah, actually, my wife and I took a road trip for the first time in a long time. Um, uh, so we drove up uh, north from 
uh, the Monterey area of California where we live, up to Seattle, to visit my wonderful niece Katie and her, her little boy, and saw some of the sights on the way and back, you know, things we had never actually seen, like the Columbia River Gorge, for example, uh, in uh, the southern end of Washington State, northern end of Oregon, which is absolutely spectacular. So the whole whole trip was just uh, beautiful in every way. Um, was that, when you say road trip, you mean you were in the car for several days? I've never driven oh, yeah. that. Yeah, it's a long trip. It, it, it was, we spent 10 days traveling, and you can drive from, from Monterey to Seattle in, say, two seven-and-a-half-hour days. We took three to take it easy um, each way and to do some sightseeing. Um, so, yeah, Did you, you enjoy being to, in the car that much? Well, my back didn't, it turns out. <laughs> that was one of the downsides when I got out of the car in Seattle I couldn't walk oh. <laughs> normally my back is I don't I'm, I'm very lucky I don't normally have back problems but boy I sure got one on this trip but yeah the car is beautifully comfortable and, and it was a pleasure just seeing everything I mean California is spectacular as you know um, in lots of different ways and then you get to go through Oregon, um, also spectacular, and then Washington State, and there's more spectacular scenery. So <laughs> it's uh, you know it's it's just amazing uh, how much beauty there is to see, especially if you get off Interstate Five uh, or the Five, as we call it in California, of course, um, which is the, you know the freeway that's super fast and efficient, but it just bypasses everything. And if you could get off and onto some of the more local highways, it's just unbelievably beautiful in all kinds of different ways all over the place. I am, um, I, I admire, I think it takes a special kind of patience to do, uh, to do a trip like that, even if there's great scenery and, and plenty of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, a couple of years ago, Ray and I did a road trip to California. And, um, I think if I had to do another one, I, um, I would have to be institutionalized. This is from Chicago? Chicago we went Chicago, Chicago to Los Angeles. Yeah, and, so you went through the plains, the plains states, right? Uh, well, yeah, we took the southern route because it was kind of w- too wintry to go up through Denver. So, mm. you know, wow. I'm sorry if, uh, if anybody in the audience is from Oklahoma, but if I never see Oklahoma again... That will be just fine with me. And frankly, I'm not all that crazy about Texas either. Well, they're both very hard to drive across. And no offense, because, of course, there are great places there, too. Um, You know, Nebraska, those those plain states, they they can be a challenge to drive across. And Texas just seems like it never ends. Um, That's because it doesn't. If you want to be driven uh, to the edge of sanity, try driving across Western Canada sometime, which I did as a young musician many years ago in a van with five other musicians in the dead of winter. And if you picture the continent just getting wider and wider as you go north, which it does, so Canada is just dramatically larger physically than the United States. Provinces like, um, especially Saskatchewan, but Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta till you hit the Rockies, are just vast, and Saskatchewan is like tabletop flat. It's so flat and so vast, you can see a city coming. Like It feels like it's, I don't know how far away the horizon is, but the moment it peaks above the horizon, you can see it, and you say, oh, we're almost there. And no, you're not. You're like hours from the city. <laughs> yeah. It's, 
that that will test your your sanity, especially at a, a low speed limit. Yeah, and especially you know we we complicated the trip. We were doing it in my Tesla, so we we had to stop and supercharge. Um, once or twice a day. And because, I don't know, uh, Elon Musk didn't have a great relationship with the highway people. So you have to, there are no like highway where you can't like stop at Dairy Queen and charge your car. You have to get off at an exit and you drive. Sometimes if you're lucky, it's just a mile. Sometimes it's two to the middle of nowhere. It was one place where we had to charge where I couldn't even find a bathroom. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, oh, it was, um, yeah, and on the way home, yeah. when we were driving home, we were really close. We were in Illinois, and, um, you know, it, the weather was bad, so, you know, of course, you're calculating how much extra battery power is it using to power the oh, windshield yeah. wipers, and and I remember <laughs> it wanted us to charge somewhere but there was a different charging station that was closer, a little bit out of our way, like in Rockford. And Ray was like, well, the car says we'll make it. And I said, Ray, okay, but I'm telling you right now, if we don't make it, not only will um, we have to sit for hours waiting for Tesla to come give us a jump, but our relationship will be over, okay? <laughs> this will be the end of us as a couple. And he said, okay, we'll go to the, we'll go to the Rockford we'll go to station. Your <laughs> yeah, well, at the risk of um, uh, possibly annoying your audience with a discussion of first world problems, I have a Tesla too, and so that uh, that um, played into our planning as well. But luckily, the Tesla app, as, as I'm sure you know, you know, it will plot the route for you. And on the West Coast, you're a lot more likely to find Tesla charging stations. And so, once I these are the this is the first time I've ever done such long trips in my Tesla. So normally, it's no issue at all. Well, That's here's here's the problem. I, what this, I think happened. Like, it did require learning how to plan. Yeah, and, you know, the I different tiers of charging and all that stuff. So. I think Tesla installed a lot of their chargers pre-pandemic because I think when they installed the chargers, they tried to find like areas where maybe there was some fast food or there was maybe a an inexpensive restaurant or something. But but during the pandemic. So many of those places went out of business, oh. and so these t- these charging areas would end up being literally like in the middle of a ghost town. Oh gosh, yeah. Again, yeah, Oklahoma and Texas. So I'm looking at you. <laughs> yeah, we we luckily didn't have that problem so much, but we you know there, you do have to learn you know the difference in levels of charging like tier 1 tier 2 tier 3 how fast it's going to charge and mm-hmm. and plan it to coincide with a meal ideally and then a road trip becomes totally fine but, but there's a little <laughs> bit of a learning curve there yeah so but as you say absolutely positively first world problems and um mostly i tell those stories now just for comic relief but let me tell you it was not funny when i was living through it it is only funny in retrospect well this trip i'm talking about in um, northern canada way back in the van full of musicians in the middle of winter like northern western canada in december in blinding snowstorms (laughs) we literally saw wolves at the side of the road at one point (laughs) so we were running running out of gas or having a breakdown (laughs) <laughs> yes but you know what you had your music right you got yeah, there you, you performed 
We've never really talked about your music career, but that was a big part of your earlier life. Yeah, it sure was. Still influences me every day. I learned so much from it. A lot of people don't realize, I don't think, what I, much as musicians and music teachers try to harp on it, I don't think a lot of people who haven't been trained in music or don't have the experience appreciate just what fantastic training for life is. Mm-hmm. I've used what I learned in music, you know, it's in business and politics and you know, running a company. I've used what I learned that way every day. Well, uh, now that uh, Spencer and I have gotten reacquainted, we are, um, when we come back from a break, I asked Spencer if we could talk about, you know, I, I like to na- really narrow it down. So I picked anti-Semitism, um, which has certainly um, been in the news. Um, Chuck Schumer made an eloquent speech on the floor of the Senate. Um, the Congressman Dan Goldman was talking about, they were both basically talking about the huge rise in anti-Semitism since the Hamas terrorist attack and the following invasion of Gaza. Spencer and I are going to get serious when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Spencer Critchley, who hosts a podcast called Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. He's also the author of a book, Patriots of Two Nations. And if you really want to understand the MAGA divide, the MAGA divide from the rest of us, that's a great place to start. I asked Spencer today if we could start with anti-Semitism, particularly there's been a rise in anti-Semitism since the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack on mostly civilians in Israel. Uh, Chuck Schumer uh, spoke on the floor of the Senate. And if you want to hear his entire speech, which is wonderfully informed and moving, it runs about, oh, 40 minutes or so, and you can find it on C-SPAN. Um, I'm going to play a couple of minutes of it right now to sort of get our discussion started. So listen to Chuck Schumer. The Anti-Defamation League estimates that anti-Semitic incidents have increased nearly 300 percent since October 7th. The NYPD has recorded a 214 percent increase in New York City. And after October 7th, Jewish Americans are feeling singled out targeted and isolated. In many ways, we feel alone. The solidarity that Jewish Americans initially received from many of our fellow citizens was quickly drowned out by other voices. While the dead bodies of Jewish Israelis were still warm, while hundreds of Jewish Israelis were being carried as hostages back to Hamas tunnels under Gaza, Jewish Americans were alarmed to see some of our fellow citizens characterize a brutal terrorist attack as justified because of the actions of the Israeli government. A vicious, blood-curdling, premeditated massacre of innocent women, men, children, the elderly, justified. Even worse, in some cases, people even celebrated what happened describing it as the deserved fate of, quote, colonizers, and calling for glory to the martyrs who carried out these heinous 
attacks. That happened here in America. Many of the people who express these sentiments in America aren't neo-Nazis or card-carrying Klan members or Islamist extremists. They're in many cases people that most liberal Jewish Americans felt previously were their ideological fellow travelers. Not long ago, many of us marched together for black and brown lives. We stood against anti-Asian hatred. We protested bigotry against the LGBTQ community. We fought for reproductive justice out of the recognition that injustice against one oppressed group is injustice against all. But apparently, Mr. President, in the eyes of some, this principle does not extend to the Jewish people. Uh, He goes on like that, mixing heartfelt sentiment with hard facts, and it is... uh, It's an important speech, and I know not everybody has 40 minutes, but if you um, have any interest at all in understanding what is going on right now, it's a good place to start. Uh, Spencer, your reaction here. Yeah, I think that this has revealed anti-Semitism that has been there all along. And it shows up in multiple forms. But I think we have to grapple with it, and we have to grapple with it on the left as well as on the right. And let me emphasize as strenuously as I can, objecting to anti-Semitism does not mean that you don't think there's a problem with anti-Muslim sentiment. And it does, does not mean that you automatically agree with you know, everything the Israeli government does, which I, I certainly do not. You know, it does not mean you don't recognize the terrible suffering of the people in Gaza right now, for example, and the and the people in the West Bank being victimized by settlers there. So it's possible for more than one thing to be true at the same time. And we do not have to choose. And in fact, every time I think we do choose and decide, okay, these people are guilty and these people are justified, at that moment of supposed justification and blaming we start to dehumanize one segment of humanity. And it often masquerades as the pursuit of justice, but justice all too often serves the purpose of dehumanization and further hatred and further violence and further suffering. And the only way this cycle gets interrupted, I think, ultimately, is to step back from whoever you think is justified and whoever you think is to blame for any issue and recognize that every human life has to be as precious as every other human life. And we have to break that cycle of saying, okay, well, now that we've decided that, you know, Israelis, for example, are colonizers, then anything is justified in the cause of liberation against colonizers. I disagree, by the way, with that characterization of Israelis. But whether you agree with it or not, I think using it as a justification for terrorism posing as liberation or other varieties of anti-Semitism is, is not at all justified, and it's not justified because it's inhumane. And I think ultimately humanism has to be what informs all of this stuff. And so on the left, you know, we've certainly seen lots of people on the left who are able to uh, entertain nuance in their minds, you know, for example, to criticize the Netanyahu government while defending Israelis' right to defend themselves against terrorism. Uh, But we've also seen these horrible examples of 
ideologues on the left sounding every bit as hateful, I'm sorry to say, as ideologues and fanatics on the right can sound, uh, who characterize Hamas as a liberation movement, as opposed to, in my opinion, a, a bunch of uh, sadistic terrorist thugs who prey upon the Palestinian people far from serving them, they prey upon them. Uh, that's you know my view. Um, but uh, the upshot of it has to be every human life is precious, and that has to include the lives of Jews and Israelis. And we are seeing cases where, for some reason, and I think you know we can guess at what that reason is, an exception is made when it's Israelis uh, who have been tortured and raped and murdered. You said something um, toward the beginning of your answer there that I completely agree with and something that seems to uh, make both you and I outliers. This idea that you can have different appraisals of different aspects of what's going on. You can think the settlements in the West Bank are awful. You can think Netanyahu is awful. But you can then also think what the Hamas terrorists did was awful. I am stunned at the number of people who cannot seem to hold these ideas in their head at one time. It's like, mm-hmm. well, if X is true, then Y and Z can't be true. And I'm like, exactly. why? I don't I, I, I'm very puzzled by this. And, you know, I know when you we were talking about patriots of two nations and you talked about you know, getting to the core of the emotional differences. Is that another, is this an example of that? A, a, a different kind of illustration of that? How, how is it that so many people can't walk and chew gum at the same time? Well, ultimately, in Patriots of Two Nations, you know, as you know, I described that, I described the existence of two radically different visions of what America actually is, and this explains a lot of the failure to communicate and nowadays mutual hatred across the Trumpist Republican slash pro-democracy divide. But ultimately, that division, I believe, is, reflects a division in our psyche, um, and that's the division between the what Freud would call, I'm sorry, what uh, Carl Jung would call the unconscious. Um, where all of our emotions reside in our intuitions and, and our spiritual apprehensions and our artistic inspirations, but also our fear and suspicion and superstition and resentment and greed and, and hatred. And then the, the rational part of the mind, which in modern times, since the rise of science starting, you know, way back around the time of Copernicus and those folks, um, the rational part of our mind has increasingly become alienated from the the unconscious. And this split is reflected in the split in our country, especially since World War II, as Democrats have become increasingly the party of well-educated meritocracy for good and ill. And Democrats, as I've often argued, increasingly are rationalistic, and it's their strength and their weakness. They... a strength to believe in science and, and to believe in the value of thinking rationally and using it to solve problems instead of using, you know, mystical faith or superstition or, or violence. Uh, 
but it, the way we are raised and educated in this modern culture tends to alienate us from the rest of our psyche. And a lot of what explains Trumpism is people insisting on remaining connected to the mystical, intuitive, emotional side of life um, for, for reasons that are often quite understandable, because a life with, without, that, that is alienated from that part of your psyche is, is a life of alienation, and it's, it's empty of meaning, and it, it might make all kinds of sense, but there's no beauty or meaning in it. But on the other hand, if you toss away the rational part of your psyche, then you're subject to every superstition and conspiracy that comes along and tribal identities and hatred of people uh, can be stoked instantly because it's a feature of our unconscious minds that we are pre-wired to form tribes uh, and to fear and hate other tribes and compete with them for resources. So this ultimately is the split. And the thing is that part of the problem with justification and blame is where you identify, oh, well, the problem is Republicans, or the problem is capitalists, or the problem is Democrats, or the problem is socialists or communists or Muslims or Jews or the Israelis or whatever, um, is that you are projecting the, in my view, real source of this problem onto others instead of recognizing it's in yourself, it's in each of us, it's in human nature. And the, the, the much larger and harder challenge we face is to accept the fact that all of the horror we see in the world, including the Hamas attack, including the deaths of innocents in Gaza right now, uh, is in human nature. And it's waiting to be released. And, and unfortunately, in many cases, incited and encouraged and promoted and supported, as it is, for example, by people like Trump, uh, Putin, by the, uh, in my view, barbaric theocrats who run Iran and who finance groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, um, and by the uh, Jewish fundamentalist extremists in the Netanyahu government who see Palestinians as less than human. Um, so that, to me, is that's the problem, and it's an enormously difficult problem, and it will continue to be our problem as long as we think we have identified the who's at fault, the one who is not us, right? And that's, to me, the core problem here. Spencer, uh, we've got to take a break. Spencer Critchley and I are going to continue this discussion in just a couple of minutes. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with Spencer Critchley, who's the author of a book called Patriots of Two Nations. We are talking about anti-Semitism. And Spencer... You were just talking about how within all of us, you know, we have this sort of, I don't know, maybe antipathy is too strong a word, the suspicion of the other. And I think that's I think that's true. But my my what I'm curious about is why so often is that other the Jewish people? Why is it why are they our number one go to for this kind of feeling? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that there are several reasons for that. Uh, and one of them is that almost anybody would have done, almost any group would have done. And once you identify that group as they're going to be the ones we cast our sins into, they're going to be our, our scapegoat, um, then they could serve that purpose throughout history. And I think in many ways that is what has happened with 
the Jews as just the accretion of hatreds with various justifications going back, you know, at least to the dawn of Christianity, uh, when the early, certainly not, you know, Jesus did not do this. Jesus was a Jew. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, but the early Christian leaders, the early leaders of the church, started to identify the Jews as the people who killed Christ, which is, you know, just a, you know, the darkest absurdity. I mean, the, it was a Jewish community under Roman domination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was people who killed Jesus. You know, and this is an example of what I'm talking about, is casting one's own sins into some other group. So, you know, that's part of it. And then over the course of history, as and, and, and this should not be underestimated, the, the impact of Christian anti-Semitism over the centuries. Um, in Europe, certainly, uh, this was used as an excuse to confine Jews to their own communities, prevent them from immigrating into various areas, uh, restricting what they could do for a living, and very often they got restricted to um, finance and business, which was seen as beneath, you know, the elites of the of Christian Europe. And then the Jews got blamed for supposedly only caring about money, when this was one of the very mm-hmm. few things they were allowed to do. And and as the rise of Jewish uh, financial families came along, they became very useful to the princes of Europe um, in facilitating financing of wars and things and borrowing and, and international transactions, which could be done through these stateless people of the Jews. And they got blamed for that, you know, as being mm-hmm. a, a shadowy international cabal of financiers. And this also plays into the left again. I think the left has to be careful not to duck the fact that this happens on our side as well, because it is in human nature and it takes different forms. So we traditionally associate modern anti-Semitism with the right and most notoriously with the Nazis. But there's an enthusiastic audience for it on the left as well and, and has been all along, uh, you know, notoriously in the Soviet Union. Um, and part of the problem there on the left is the identification with Jews with finance as well. And if you go back to Karl Marx, uh, one of his um, pieces of work that has not aged at all well is uh, called On the Jewish Question. And even though he was born into a Jewish family, you know, he was an atheist himself and was very much against religion of all kinds. But he identified the Jews with the bourgeoisie, the you know finance-oriented middle class, property-owning middle class. And that is a horrendously anti-Semitic piece of work. Now, Marxists will excuse it and claim that he, he was actually parodying anti-Semitism. I, I have read it. I don't believe that. I think he was, like many Europeans of the time, identifying Jews with what we would call Wall Street today. And it was entirely acceptable um, to say the most horrendous things about Jews. And um, it would be kind of like people complaining about Wall Street today, but with this added uh, element of racial hatred and conspiracy theories and and all of that. So, you know, there's a long history of anti-Semitism. It's been incredibly vicious in many cases, Um, you know, pogroms in, in Russia and Eastern Europe and uh, and, and then, of course, through the Holocaust, and now we see it today. And I think on the left, part of the anti-Semitism we see is is a legacy of Marx. It's an it's an it's a hostility to the bourgeoisie on the radical left and to property owning and capitalists and an identification of Jews with capitalism. And then, since the rise of post-colonial 
thinking, which in many ways has been, of course, necessary and very useful as formerly colonized countries have tried to grapple with their experience under colonialism. Um, the identification of Jews with colonization uh, and the labeling of Israel as a colonizing power. And this is an incredibly reductive view of history uh, to, to call uh, Israel a colonial power. Uh, there are certainly lots that can be objected to in the way that the state of Israel was created, but to call Israel alone a colonial power uh, when that land you know, was formerly under the domination of the Ottoman Empire and before that a long series of other colonizing powers before and then was you know, supposed to be created as two separate states of Palestinians and Israelis Spencer, by quick question. Uh, the United like, Nations. Uh, so the colonialist first. label... <laughs> Yeah, I have a, I have a quick question. I, I need you. I need you to explain something before you go on, because Chuck Schumer said, you know, that there are people calling uh, Israel colonists, and I took that to mean not that the very possession of Israel was them being colonists. I thought that they were referring to the fact that Israel was allowing sell- settlements in the yeah. West Bank. Did I look at that, do you think, too narrowly? Because I was like, well, what are, what, so, how could they be colonists? On, well, I guess you could say the settlements on the West Bank, maybe? I don't know. No, it, well, it depends on who's... who's you think they're the talking I, I about the bigger picture. I agree that the behavior of the settlers, the, the Israeli settlers in the West Bank, is, is colonial behavior. It's, you know, they're, they're invading territory that's owned by Palestinians legitimately. You know, and they're violating agreements left and right and often using violence and sometimes killing Palestinians while they seize their land. So I think that's totally fair game to call those people colonizers. But there's many people on the left who argue that the creation of the state of Israel was an act of colonialism. Um, you know, and, and again, clearly, you know, the facts on the ground indicate that the way Israel was created uh, was not ideal. It was far from ideal. You know, and many Palestinians at the time suffered greatly, but so did many Israelis. And it's, the history is, is very complicated. And to reduce, and you cannot find, oh, well, the Israelis were entirely at fault or the Palestinians were entirely at fault. You just cannot come up with that if you actually learn the history. You discover it's human beings with a mix of motivations, some of them good, some of them bad, on both sides. And... It well, resulted in an incredibly complicated situation now, but it was not. That, that what about the argument that that Britain is at fault for the way? Oh yeah, they, there's lots of there's lots of blame there. I mean, Britain and France, and you know, this is there, there are elements of this argument where colonialism and the sort of colonialist view of the non-European world was definitely in play. You know, um, during World War II, Britain. Uh, established several different conflicting agreements, um, for example, um, with um, Hassan bin Ali, if I'm remembering his right, his name correctly, who, who led the Arab revolt that Lawrence of Arabia is famously uh, associated with, and Britain ended up betraying him and um, dividing up the Middle East in, in collaboration with France and creating many of the modern Arab countries in a classically sort of arrogant colonialist way uh, that ended up, you know, laying the groundwork for what we're still experiencing today. There's a, a great book on this called A Peace to End All Peace, you know, the peace of World War One. 
World War One was supposed to be the war to end all wars, but the peace that concluded it in many ways ended all peace, uh, you know, in many ways led to World War II, but also led to much of the strife we've seen ever, ever since in the Middle East. But that cannot simply be laid at the feet of Britain or France, as culpable as they are from back then, or the Jewish immigrants, you know, who were immigrating legally into that area, often with the active cooperation and encouragement of the Ottoman Empire, who owned it at the time, and then with um, the help and assistance of the British afterwards when it became the Palestinian mandate that that territory became known. And, you know, especially during the 30s when they were fleeing the gathering the gathering storm of the Holocaust, um, to lay all of the blame on them for what amounted to immigration and an immigration problem where you were arguing about how many immigrants we should accept. Um, Now, again, there were people among the Zionist movement doing this immigration who were clear-eyed about their intention to take over the whole traditional land of Palestine, but not all of them. And on the Palestinian side, there were many people who had a legitimate object, objection to this massive immigration, especially as it picked up as it, towards world and during World War II. But there were also people who had a genocidal reaction to this immigration and wanted to destroy the immigrating Jews. So, you, you know, you find this on, as I say, this is why it becomes incredibly difficult to just say, well, these people are at fault or those people are at fault. And to call Israelis colonialists, allows you to stop thinking about this enormously complicated issue with its roots really in the complexities of human nature and the deeply mixed motives of human nature. It allows you to do this radical reductivism and dehumanize the people you're labeling as colonialists. And I I think it's every bit as bad as dehumanizing Palestinians or anybody else. Um, This is, you know, one thing I wanted to mention in this discussion as well, because I think it's especially relevant. There's a great deal of confusion, including among members of the left, between the progressive left and the authoritarian left. And in many ways, there's, there's always been an authoritarian left, going back at least, well, before Marx to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, I would say, um, that believes that it has the correct theory of society, essentially. And if you disagree, you can only be Mistaken or corrupt was the only two possible options. And that was kind of the way Marx looked at things. And that tendency persists to this day in various forms on the left. And it's not a particular ideology as a particular style of thinking, which is ultimately authoritarian based on theory, whereas on the right, authoritarianism tends to be based on mysticism and the exercise of raw power. On the left, it tends to be based on the exercise of theory. And in recent decades, especially recently, a lot of people have become confused about the difference between the authoritarian far left and the progressive far left. Uh, There is a significant difference, and it's whether or not you believe in liberalism and and tolerance for dissent. And it's very important for those of us who believe in liberalism, no matter where we are, we can be pretty far left to defend fundamental liberal values like tolerance of dissent and inclusion of multiple viewpoints and rejection of demonizing people and dehumanizing people and, God forbid, the use of violence and terrorism. But that that distinction has often been blurred, and we see that now with people 
I thought recently the Oakland, the Oakland School Teachers Union, the Oakland Education Association in, in the Bay Area of California, issued a statement labeling Israel as a genocidal apartheid state, as if that's the job of the teachers <sighs> union in Oakland, California. And to me, that's an example of the authoritarian left at work, because they just, you might agree with that. You're free in a liberal democracy to agree with that characterization. I disagree with it. But they, in their view, that's, no, that's just simply informing young students about the way things actually are. And that's an example of this sort of theory-driven authoritarian left. And by contrast, if you look at people often thought of as very far to the progressive left, like Bernie Sanders and um, AOC, they immediately distanced themselves from this kind of talk. Like when the Democratic Socialists of America, and they were both, you know, affiliated with BSA, came out with their celebration of the Hamas atrocities, AOC and Bernie Sanders immediately uh, disassociated with themselves and from those remarks and condemned them. And there's an example, because they're an example of people who are on the far progressive left, as opposed to the authoritarian left. And there's a very important mm -hmm. difference there. Very important difference. Um, <clears throat> we seem to be in a time where maybe, Spencer, you've studied this more than me. Maybe people have always been this way. But I know you talk about how, you know, the Renaissance thinking and how Democrats are in their heads and they want to talk policy. And part of the reason Trump is so successful is he sort of touches people's hearts and, and souls. We seem to be in a time where um, people are crazy um, and getting crazier by the minute, Spencer. I, that's an mm -hmm. unscientific observation, but I'm sure you've seen the video of, I think it might have even been last night, where a couple hundred people waving Palestinian flags were standing outside of a Jewish restaurant. Like, God. What the, what was that supposed to accomplish? Did they want the restaurant to close? Did they want the people in the restaurant to just understand how supportive they were of Palestine and how, the, because they were in a Jewish restaurant, the people in there must not be and they need to be educated about this? I don't know. Yeah, Stuart, I have less and less you, hope for us as time goes on. No, well. Yeah, well, I think, you know, in, in the larger scale of this, it's the breakdown of a cultural consensus, which used to be provided by a universal church in a culture and, a, and that was tied to the government. So, you know, in Europe, classically, you were, you were a Catholic country, or then later, you know, you were part of the Protestant church. And in England, you know, the, the monarch is the head of the Church of England. Um, and so whether you believed it or not, everybody had the same set of values and the same explanation of reality. Um, and the same moral code um, that broke down during the Enlightenment, and now you know people that immediately led to the rise of the age of ideology. By the way, where we suddenly saw the appearance of Marxism and ethnic nationalism and, and liberalism, which is you know my choice. Um, hmm. But ideology, in a way, in important ways, took the place of religion to try to world. But ideology has continued to fragment, and, you know, Marxists break down into factions, and so do nationalists, and, and this is an example of, this is one of the causes of the insanity we see now, I think, is that people are not well-equipped to live completely freely in a condition of doubt where nobody is telling you for sure what's right and wrong and what's true and what's false, and so it's kind of an open market now, and that leads... Uh, 
all kinds of opportunity to appeal to the absolute worst instincts in people, you know, to, to form these tribal identity groups and to hate each other, which people will do at the drop of a hat. There's many psychological experiments that show you can get people to mistrust, dislike, and, and even hate each other based on collecting a random group of strangers and giving them different colored T-shirts. So, you know, in the absence of a shared cultural consensus, we're very much um, vulnerable to this. But one of the things that bothers me the most is to see highly educated people on the left who should know better, and many of whom are practicing the shoddiest scholarship in some of our universities. It's not only is it ugly, in my opinion, but it's just incoherent. And who are advocating a return to identitarian definitions of humanity, where it's claimed that there is something um, essentially different about belonging to various ethnic and racial groups that makes it impossible for people who are not in that group to understand the way you see the world. And all we can do is try to accommodate all of them um, with no ground of agreeing to set aside our personal you know, religions and uh, political views, ideological views, and, and try to meet in a public sphere of reasoned debate. That's considered to be, you know, at best quaint, and, and often it's that, that view, which is a liberal view, is, is seen as oppressive, but it leads to the justification of this, that kind of insane behavior outside a Jewish restaurant, as if there's something essential about Jews or other people going to a restaurant that serves food identified with the Jewish faith, as if there's something that, you know, <laughs> could somehow be wrong and, need, and in, in need of protesting. And, you know, the insanity extends to this meeting in the middle in the famous horseshoe diagram of, of extreme ideology. You go far enough to the right or left and you end up meeting at the bottom of the horseshoe. There are people who, who embrace this authoritarian version of the left where, based on this extreme identity politics and this intolerance for disagreement, who are actually now influenced by a guy named Carl Schmitt, who was the leading philosopher of Nazism. Now, this does not mean that they're Nazis, but they think that he had a point when he argued that national groups are essentially different from each other and that the um, status quo will always be conflict. And that so the, the essence of the group is conflict against other groups. And, and Carl Schmitt is no longer repudiated uh, out of hand the way you would expect um, by people on the authoritarian left. And similarly, they've adopted ideas from Michel Foucault, uh, who was sort of radically against any form of authority, but turned it into a form of authoritarianism based on um, his postmodern uh, philosophizing, excuse me, philosophizing. And once again, it's, it's, it's not any particular ideology, I don't think. It's a, it's a human urge towards tyranny um, that we must recognize in ourselves or we will just continue to find new excuses for it, whatever those excuses are, whether we're some kind of crazy right-wing Christian nationalist or racist or, uh, or whether we fool ourselves into thinking we have some complicated academic theory that justifies this kind of behavior. I think it amounts to the same thing. And I'll, I'll close that that peroration with um, a quote from Pogo Possum, who I, I must have mentioned this quote to you before. It's one of my favorites. I think Pogo Possum from the old Walt Kelly comic strip is one of the greatest American philosophers. 
uh, if for nothing else than saying, we have met the enemy and he is us. And it's a deliberate misquote of we have met the enemy and he is ours, um, you know, from Commodore Perry way back in the early 19th century. But we have met the enemy and he is us. And I think that's a very deep thought. Anytime we think we've identified the enemy, uh, we should recognize that, in fact, we're projecting something from ourselves onto that person. Now, some people, of course, we have to oppose. I believe we have to oppose Hamas. You know, I think we have to oppose the... Um, theocrats running Iran. I think we have to oppose the fanatics in the Netanyahu uh, government. Um, But there's a difference between that and identifying a group of people as the enemy and, and, or thinking there's something external to human nature that explains evil, whether you think that's capitalism or you think it's communism or you think it's, you know, Islam or Catholicism or, Judaism or whatever you think it is, anytime you do that, you're, in my view, perpetuating a cycle of hatred and violence and suffering by failing to recognize that deep wisdom from Pogo Possum, which is we've (laughs) met the enemy and he is us. I used to have a, a friend who always said that if there's something about somebody that you really hate, Chances mm-hmm. are it's something that you yourself are doing and and yes. and that you there you recognize it's something that you are doing that you don't want to do or some part of you yep. that you are denying and you see it in somebody else and you really, really hate it in them. Yeah, well, I think part of the intensity of the revulsion against Trump, I would, would have to say, is that in my view, he encapsulates all of the worst characteristics of human nature. Um and in many ways, the worst things you could say about Americans, the worst stereotypes of an American, you know, somebody who is ignorant and proud of it and completely self-centered and completely materialistic and racist and greedy and lazy and all of these things where I would normally object strenuously when people say, oh, well, you know what Americans are like. Uh, <laughs> Trump is that. <laughs> and I think that all those things are also in all of us. And the extent to which one feels by Trump, I think you have to recognize part of it is because you're afraid that you yourself have that kind of narcissism and selfishness uh, and venality and vindictiveness and cowardice and all of that, because you actually do. It's just that if you're a moral person, you try to be aware of it, you know, and and you try not to have it rule you and, and to, and you try to notice when you do things where you surrender to those darker parts of yourself Um, you know, and and do things like apologize and make things right. Spencer, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. And I got to say, the hour just flies by. Um, Thank you for tackling uh, a very thorny issue with us today and uh, doing it with uh, such intelligence. I really appreciate you joining our show. John, it's always a pleasure. And I, I I really appreciate your always intelligent, thoughtful questions and the conversation we always end up having is always very rewarding for me. Spencer and I, in a few weeks, will continue this love fest when I uh, have him back, (laughs) probably after the holidays. Um, Thank you again, my friend, for being here. You listen to his podcast. 
Uh, okay. You can find it wherever you get your podcast, Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. From time to time, we talk to reporters who work for the Courier Newsroom Group. And there is a Courier publication called Cardinal and Pine that is directed to the folks in North Carolina. You can find the website at cardinalpine.com. Leave the and out. Cardinalpine.com. Today, we're uh, talking to Michael McElroy, who is a political reporter at Cardinal and Pine. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. I want to talk to you about your latest reporting, but I have to start with Jeff Jackson. Like many people, Mm -hmm. I did not know Congressman Jeff Jackson until I stumbled across his videos, which were so engaging and so informative that um, he became uh, something of a uh, of a social media star. And he just like would sit uh, at a table in front of the camera and say, you know what, I'm new to Congress. Um, here's my first hundred days. This is what I've learned. And I thought to myself, why has nobody ever done this before? I mean, there we have a congresswoman, Jan Schakowsky, and she posts, she emails out videos. Oh, I don't know, at least once a month. And she calls it Jan's Picks and Pans. And she talks at length about what's been going on. But it doesn't, they tend to be much longer. She tries to, she wants to cover everything that's happened in the last month. She doesn't focus on one particular thing or one particular uh, issue just doesn't have quite the same production values. And in this world where we're all short attention span people posting a video that's five or six or seven minutes long isn't going to get you as many views as uh, posting a video that's two or three minutes long and focuses on one particular point. Um, but I've been I've been following uh, this guy's career as I would imagine, uh, you have to some degree as well. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you think sure. about Jeff Jackson. Well, I, I, I mean, Jeff Jackson is becoming far wide, more widely known than he was for the very reason you said. And I will say this about Jeff Jackson. He is wildly overqualified. But if he ever wanted to be, you know, run our social media teams, <laughs> we would hire him in a heartbeat. Because he's got a real feel uh, for the the challenges that that, the, that you already laid out, I mean, uh, first of all, young voters are the, one of the largest growing uh, groups of voters, which is, uh, is you have to step back to say they're also historically one of the kind of least engaged uh, historically, but that that is changing over the last several cycles, and he is tapping it right into the kind of way they engage with politics which is the videos, which is the kind of direct, uh, kind of direct reach speaking directly to them. And he's got that ear for timing, uh, which even we sometimes don't get right, uh, of, you know, that, the too, a too long of a video is gone. It just drops off. It goes away. 
And so uh, he's got the timing right. He's got the engagement uh, right. And he's talking about the issues that uh, are frequently most on the on the forefront of young voters minds. So that's really a big deal. Of course, um, he uh, widely popular in his current district and with gerrymandering, uh, uh, recent gerrymandering, he has now in his new district, no hope of winning. Yeah. And so he he is uh, said he will not seek reelection uh, because of that. And he is running instead for our attorney general. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely wonderful. You just said something that uh, triggered a memory. You talked about how uh, he has a great sense of timing. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, somebody pointed out to me because I was complaining. I think that. um you know, that we were I'm so tired of all this. Oh, Joe Biden is too old when Donald Trump is only three years younger and much less healthy. But I think that part of what I don't know if uh, Joe Biden has media trainers or if he does have them and <laughs> doesn't listen to them. But somebody told me they said, you know, they remembered the Ronald Reagan era. And when Ronald Reagan would make a speech or give a press conference, he would speak relatively uh, in a relatively short time, like a few minutes, like, you know, I'm I'm the president. Thank you for being here. We're going to talk about, you know, job creation and to to give you all of that good information. I am joined by my secretary of whatever who's going to explain it all to you. And I had forgotten about that that the people around Ronald Reagan, they sort of, and he was considered a pretty good speaker, but they they made, they didn't give him the opportunity to go awry or stumble or embarrass himself. He was there, he was in front of people, but it was in a very contained way. And he would right. bring in somebody else to do a lot of the talking. My I think Joe Biden, I mean, nobody's going to ever say Joe Biden is a great orator. I mean, that just isn't that just isn't the case. But I don't think he does himself any favors because it's like whenever he's in front of a microphone, even if it's not making a press statement from the White House. I think he talks, he goes on too long and he seems to go. He doesn't want to just cover one thing or one idea, get in, get out. It's like, well, I'm here. You know, you've gone to all this trouble. I might as well also tell you about this. And then there's that other thing. And that reminds me of a story. And I think that he doesn't do himself any favors by talking for 15 or 20 minutes when he could say what he needs to say in five minutes. You know, I know that that you and all the other reporters at Cardinal and Pine are much smarter about media and social media than the rest of us mere mortals. What do you think? Well, one, um, anybody who claims to be an expert in these things is just lying right out of their face because (laughs) it is an ever moving target. Um, and this, the second you think you have it figured out and then you try to replicate that and no one watches the thing. So, uh, so no, we're all just groping in the dark for success. Uh, but I'll say, I mean, Joe Biden, the, the concerns about his age are a million percent overblown. Uh, but at the same time, Joe Biden has been Joe Biden for a while and there's no, I mean, at some point who's going to stop being themselves. 
Um, and I, I, I'm not 100% sure that I think that the shortening, rapidly shortening attention spans are good things. And I wish that we could hang on for just a few more minutes to, to group a couple of ideas together. Um, that said, Jeff Jackson is just, he's in, he's of this movement. And Joe Biden is of a different way of communicating, who's having to kind of adapt to this new thing. And um, I don't know. I'm not I'm not sure that one can blame a million percent Joe Biden for being Joe Biden um, and those kinds of things. Um, But I will say that the thing that, uh, you know, authenticity is a huge, huge part of these things. And the, 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 the kind of other side of the coin, I'm not sure if that's the right metaphor at all, actually, but the other side of this for Jeff Jackson is, like you were talking about with Reagan, these are highly polished things, and there's no real risk to Jeff Jackson in this content. So Joe Biden, when he goes up and he's talking to people, is usually part of a conversation, part of a back and forth, part of or part of a, a press a press conference in which there's, you know, uh, pushback against ideas. And that kind of medium is just going to, by its nature, be longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 very true. Um, I am joined now by Michael McElroy, who's the political reporter at Cardinal and Pine. And uh, when we come back, North Carolina just expanded Medicaid. Big, big deal. I want to talk to Michael about that when we come right back after a break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Michael McElroy, who's the political reporter at Cardinal and Pine, which is the news outlet that you would be reading on a daily basis if you lived in North Carolina or... If you just really enjoy national politics like I do and probably many of you do, uh, North Carolina uh, expanded Medicaid. How did that happen? Well, it wasn't a light switch. It was a, a long, 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 long process. Uh, but they did. And it is a big deal. And expanding Medicaid uh, in North Carolina at least means uh, 600,000 people who are now um, either uh, gain access to it or uh, not have to worry about losing it. Um, and um, it, uh, it, it was a weird, it was a weird switch, but the, you have to go back to um, when Governor Roy Cooper, a Democrat was elected. Um, and the day after he was elected, uh, he's, his term is about to end um, his second term. So 2016, he was elected the day after uh, he was uh, inaugurated. He said the first thing we want to do is expand Medicaid, but uh, the Republicans have controlled the legislature here for a while, and they were adamantly against it, uh, refused to even kind of take up a vote on it. And then it just it just became over those eight years, um, it just became too. I mean, it's just such a popular idea, um, mm-hmm. and it just became too popular to ignore. And a lot of the Republican legislators who were against it are in rural areas. And the rural areas, I'm sure it's the same in Illinois, but it for sure is here. Uh, the rural areas are the ones kind of like that will benefit the most from the yeah. expansion of Medicaid. Um, and we had a couple of it was kind of after they had already agreed. But like we've had, we've had even more uh, rural hospitals close in North Carolina. Um, that was happening in the buildup. So you just had this kind of like 
is these weird dominoes that just made it just no longer uh, palatable for, for Republicans to hold out, even if uh, the ones who ultimately voted to do it were the ones who just a couple years ago said they never would. So like, it's not like they had a change of heart. They just kind of realized the, the calculus. Initially, um, but it went through. when state legislatures were voting against expanding Medicaid, the only understandable reason I could come up with for this, since the federal government basically waved a whole pot of money in front of legislator, legislatures, was that they just didn't want to give Joe Biden a win. I don't know. Is yeah. there more to it than that? Uh, well, I mean, the, 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 the hesitation was before Biden came along. Um, so it wasn't, it's not just that, but it is, it is a, I mean, there is a, there is this weird, and it doesn't make it any less warped, but there's still this kind of, um, uh, what this, um, this ideological, uh, push against, uh, Medicaid at all. Um, uh, Mark Robinson, uh, the lieutenant governor, who's the Republican lieutenant governor, who's running for governor, even all in the face of all this popularity and the face of the legislature finally saying, and it was a pretty big vote when they when they voted to pass it, it was it wasn't close. Um, even he said, you know, that's the one thing I wish wasn't happening that they were expanding Medicaid. So he's still staking this ideological wow. stance against it. It's, it's strange. Um, so I, I, it's really weird. But one of the big things is the Biden administration gave uh, gave the state. I think it wasn't, it wasn't just North Carolina, but they kind of gave this like this pot sweetener uh, to um, and like almost two billion. I think it was one point seven billion dollars to like can you, it will give you one point seven billion dollars. You can do with whatever you want if you just expand Medicaid. So it just hmm. became it's like a signing bonus, you know, and um, <laughs> it just became. It just became too m- much. I mean, it was just the the momentum could no longer be pushed back against. Even, but the really funny, hilarious thing about North Carolina is Republicans um, agreed to uh, they reach a deal to expand Medicaid. Uh, they they voted uh, almost overwhelmingly, finally, with Democrats to pass the expansion. Uh, our, our legislators, leaders, Republicans, Tim Moore, Phil Berger, they were standing right next to Governor Cooper as he signed the bill. They made a big deal. There was lots of applauding and shaking of hands. And they tied the expansion, which they passed in March, to the final implementation of a budget, which is completely unrelated. Because like you said, the, the federal government pays 90 percent of the costs. So the budget has really nothing to do with the expansion of Medicaid, but they said it could not go into effect until there was a deal on the budget. And that was seen at the time as a way to like make Democrats kind of choke down all these other things, these things they didn't want that would be included in the budget. So they were still using Medicaid expansion as this weird poison pill, um, even after they voted to expand it. So December, December 1st, it went into effect. Um, but they passed this bill in March. It could have 100 percent been April 1st that yeah. that or well, maybe May, May 1st that it went in, went into effect. And they didn't. They waited until now. You know, one of the things that I really like about with the article you wrote on this is, you know, you talked about what happened. But one of the things that people, I think, get frustrated by with with journalists is trying to figure out what 
they can do, how they can take advantage of something, how a new program affects them or how they apply for it. And your reporting on this Medicaid expansion, I think, is particularly brilliant because you laid out so clearly who can apply. Well, if you're a family of two, this, a family of four, this, these are the requirements. And I think sometimes reporters um, I don't know whether it's because they want to show their style or they want to be particularly interesting. They don't lay out the who, what, where, when, and why very clearly, and they make people work for it. And I think that the way you have covered this is is the kind of thing that readers love. Well, uh, thank you for saying that. Um, uh, but I have to admit, I, too, love to exhibit my style and, and be found interesting. <laughs> Don't we all? Uh, I'm a big fan, big fan. Um, but, um, well, I mean, that was like, that was one, that, that story was targeted, that how-to, because it is such a complicated thing. Um, and the big thing, like, our with the people we try to reach most are the ones who really care about these things, but are just, and they have got really busy lives, and they're not, as engaged, they're not, you know, they're not reading Politico um, very often, if at all. And so, you know, this, the real world effect, and it's not always, it's like it's rarely actually easy to do, but the real world effects, what these things have to do, how politics translates into day-to-day lives, like that's kind of our mission and what we want to show, like why people should care, how this affects. So it's not just the same old partisan barking and we, we do have a progressive point of view uh but like your tagline is like facts matter i mean facts facts matter far more in our reporting than our point of view mm-hmm. um and um so it's just about how can we help people understand what's going on um often especially when it's a complicated issue like this one yeah um and that's sometimes really difficult to do so um There are other things that I want to touch on that are going on in North Carolina. You mentioned, well, you and I, in our discussion of of Jeff Jackson, the gerrymandering. Um, Is there going to be any, is there any chance that it would be undone by the courts? Sounds pretty extreme. Um, Very likely no. Um, And that's because uh, the gerrymandering would um, ultimately, the final say would come to our state Supreme Court. And North Carolina has partisan Supreme Court elect or all court uh, elections, and in twenty whatever it was twenty twenty two, they flipped from a Democratic majority into a pretty big uh, Republican majority. And the Republican majority state Supreme Court has already, uh, just in this one year, overturned um, precedent that the Democratic court had ruled on as recently as like a, a months ago or like the last few uh, months of their term. So they, they overruled some pretty big things and um, it's very likely that they are going to uphold. Um, Cause in a previous thing, when they overturned uh, when they overturned uh, the previous, the, the gerrymandering thing is so, so complicated that I'm not even going to try and get into the weeds because <laughs> it's nothing but weeds. But, but they, the, uh, state Supreme Court controlled by Democrats already ruled that previous maps were unconstitutional. The new Supreme Court invalidated that ruling. And their reasoning was essentially 
Yeah, it was probably gerrymandering. Yeah, it was probably unconstitutional. Uh, but we we can't. The, the 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 legislature has supreme say in election matters, and we can't we can't get involved even if we wanted to. Hmm. So it's really hard to take that reasoning in a ruling, and then somehow see them go except here. <laughs> um, so yes, this this map is almost surely going to, or these maps, these three, are surely going to stay. Wow. Um, and it's weird. If I can say one more thing, I let everyone sure. love numbers. Uh, but the previous maps that were redrawn after the D- Democratic Supreme Court ruling ended in the, the congressional map of a 7-7 seven to seven split in the House, the U.S. House, uh, and, and the North Carolina Republicans. And that, that is in keeping with the political split in the state. Uh, with there is slightly more Democrats than Republicans, um, and a lot more unaffiliated unaffiliated voters than than each. But these new maps that were drawn are going to go from a seven to seven even split uh, to very likely a ten three, uh, excuse me, a ten four majority Republican. Mm-hmm. Wow, so that's just not in keeping at all with the political realities of the state. Wow. Um, Michael McElroy is going to be our eyes and ears in North Carolina. <laughs> He's a political reporter at Cardinal and Pine, the courier publication that keeps an eye on all things North Carolina. And um, I also, uh, let's see, what, what's her name? Do I have the, oh, shoot, where is it? Your reporter <laughs> that did um, the story, Leah, I think, who did the story on yeah. um on pets, on shelters, uh, North Carolina yeah. shelter wants you to take a field trip with a rescue dog. Please, please yeah. tell Leah that I thought that was exactly the kind of reporting that people should be doing. <laughs> um, we have a I soft spot for shelters here. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me, John. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Last week, I mentioned, but we didn't spend a lot of time on this, but I mentioned a ruling by the Eighth Circuit Court that just seemed to come out of left field. It had to do with voting rights and who was able to take these kinds of issues to court. And the Eighth Circuit Court said, uh, you got a problem with the government? Sorry about that. Only the government can take the government to court. I know it doesn't make any sense. And maybe it doesn't make any sense because I don't really understand what's going on. Uh, Our good friend, Greg Pallast, who's an investigative reporter, he's worked for the BBC. He uh, just recently did a documentary about the Osage people and how the Kochs stole their money. Well, he's an expert, as you know, on voting and voting suppression. We've talked about all of his work in Georgia. He has been writing about the Eighth Circuit Court, and perhaps he is the one who can explain to us what is going on. Greg, how are you? Uh, pretty good, except for this decision. Now, it might sound pretty obscure to people. You're talking Eighth Circuit and you know who's suing what over what. Let me make this clear. Set your hair on fire right now, because this basically virtually repeals the last living section of the Voting Rights Act. If you remember back in uh, 2013, 
the uh, Supremes, the right wing Supremes voted to um, remove what is called Section 5. That that put a knife into the Voting Rights Act. But Section 2 still remains. Doesn't matter what 2, 5, forget all that stuff. All Section 2 says is that if you get shafted out of your vote, if there's some racist procedure, or we, you were just talking about gerrymandering in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Now, if a someone wants, if, if you are a black voter or, a, a, you know, another voter, a minority voter, um, and you lost your vote because of this or you lost your power because of this gerrymandering, under this ruling, if it becomes national, you can't sue. You can't sue. You're out of it. Even though the Voting Rights Act says you may not lose your rights, the state of North of South Carolina, North Carolina, any Carolina can't take away your rights. If you're a voter of color, if there's any racial purpose here, but now you can't sue about it. And in this case, now this applies now a circuit. What, what do you mean that there are nine circuits in, in the United States? What that means is that America is divided into units. So this ruling at the moment applies to Arkansas, Minnesota, Iowa, North Carolina, South Carolina, Nebraska, and Missouri, but it's going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Then look out, because when that happens, we've already heard bleedings from um, Koch's justices. I want to say Charles, I mean, I'm doing this film on Charlie Koch right now. <laughs> um, and he actually, you know, uh, he was just outed for secretly um, paying you know, pleasuring uh, Justice Thomas or Injustice Thomas. Mm -hmm. Thomas has already indicated that he's going to vote, that he would vote to remove your right to sue if you get shafted out of your vote, period. You can't as a voter. Now, understand what that means. Now, you, you talked about my, in Georgia. Now, I did a whole story, a movie, which many of your WCPT people saw in a special event in Chicago and then Minnesota, um, which was um, about these voter vigilantes, these people who challenged one quarter of a million voters in Georgia. If they had succeeded, you wouldn't have Senator Warnock, and then you wouldn't have a Democratic Senate. We were able to expose them and block them, but on top of it, the NAACP sued the state and said, you can't allow this, sued under federal law, saying this is a violation of the Voting Rights Act. And they didn't sue, and they sued on behalf of, a, of Major Gamaliel Turner. He's a military, career military man who uh, was assigned to California. They blocked him from voting in Georgia. And he is sued. He's in court now, suing the state, suing these uh, voter vigilante groups. Well, forget it. If this ruling becomes national, it's already effective in eight states. If it becomes national, well, they throw this soldier's case out of court. He's out of luck. He's done. He's finished. And here's the other problem. It says, so the government is the perpetrator of the vote suppression crimes. This court said that only the government, in other words, the perps, can sue. Only the government can sue. No voter can sue if they're shafted. They specifically told the end, and this is a court order. The NAACP specifically is barred from filing any suit on behalf of a voter shafted out of their rights in those eight states. And it will become 50 if it gets this right-wing court, and they go along with it. And it's looking pretty bad. You Greg, literally, any, if you're a voter... Yeah, yeah, I know you said ahead. this is going to go to SCOTUS, the Supreme Court. But remember, yeah. they kind of surprised us 
with that ruling. I think it was in Alabama where they were like, yeah, you know, you got a lot of black people and you only have one uh, largely black district. Now we think you ought to redo this map. And everybody was like, whoa. So maybe maybe there's some hope here. I yes, there's absolutely hope. Uh, always the swing vote on these things is the chief justice or injustice, Roberts. He's a very political cat. But he might say, you know, we don't know what you know, like, you know, we, we did. We just saw Roe v. Wade go down the drain five. Just so you know, the Federalist Society is this right wing group funded by Koch and some other right wing billionaires. They now they have they are the people that came up with five of the nine justices names, five of the nine justices come out of the Federalist Society. And that's the uber right wing Coke crew. Mm-hmm. This is not very pretty. And so Roberts might say, oh, well, this is a chance for me to, um, you know, to basically th- this basically wipes out the ability. And so they specifically said NAACP couldn't sue, but obviously that applies. The ACLU went in there. They said, no, you can't sue anywhere. If this happens, literally every voting rights group in America is barred from bringing a lawsuit. You as a voter, if you're, if you're shafted out of vote, like you take Georgia, you know what they say? Like, let me give you an example from Georgia. You'll love this one, Joan. Um, a million people, almost all of them Democrats, almost solidly Democrats, 1.1 million people used drop boxes in the 2000, uh, the 2020 election. That's why Biden won. Now, of course, they're saying, oh, the ballots were stuffed and they never this all baloney that it was fraudulent ballots. But because it was during COVID, it was easy to mail to stick your ballot in a drop box. A million voters, one point one million voted. Now they've said that basically prohibited drop boxes in in um, the in counties with um, more than 100,000 active voters. That means it, in cities more than 100,000 active voters. That means um, Atlanta and Savannah, the two Democratic cities. So basically, they said the two Democratic cities, which, by the way, not incidentally, are the two black cities of big black cities of Georgia, they can't have drop boxes. They can have one, uh, I'm sorry, they can have one drop box for Atlanta, right? <laughs> and so, and now it's so racist on its face. But if you are the voter, you can't sue. Now, the one thing we have at the moment is with the Biden administration in, because, you know, whether the whether the GOP likes it or not, Biden is the executive branch of our government. He can have uh, Merrick Garland could still sue the attorney general. But if Trump comes in or another Republican, you are going to have the vote suppressors who have Uh. there will be the only people authorized by the court to bring a suit for racial voting suppression. It is beyond imagination, but this is the danger. And so what's happening is the voting rights groups are screaming bloody murder, but because they use terms like a circuit, private right to sue, uh, you know, section two, all this stuff, it confuses people. It's real simple. They're going to stop you. If you get shafted out of your vote. you will not have the right to go to court. You've lost your day in court. You lose your vote. You lose your country. You lose your democracy. That's what's at stake here. It applies right now in eight states, and it's heading right to the Supremes. And 
so the warning, I'm raising the alarm. I'm doing the Paul Revere here. You know, don't wait till after it's, it's done. Just like when Roe v. Everyone's shocked when Roe v. Wade went down. Everyone's shocked when the Voting Rights Act Section 5 went down. Don't be shocked. You just heard it here. Uh, WCPT, you heard it now. We're heading towards a total, to use the terms of the uh, a democracy docket, which is kind of a consortium of, of voting rights groups. They said, this is, quote, catastrophic. <sighs> and as I've said, catastrophic is an understatement. This is danger, danger, danger. So we have to get raise our voices now. We have to make sure I'm waiting for the Biden administration. The Biden administration has the right to go into this case and scream bloody murder. I'm praying that they do. I suspect they will. But they still when have to go. When you say the Biden and the administration, the do you mean Merrick Garland or do you actually mean the yes. White House can join, get in involved here? Well, it's, it's, the, it's always the White House is represented by the attorney general. And so the United States of America, so right now, so the so Merrick Garland is attorney general representing the United States, I the see. federal government, can join and go to the court and say, this is a real bad decision. And you know what the, what the ugly part of this is? The court said, yes, the practices in Arkansas are racist and violate the law, but you can't do anything about it, NAACP. You can't do anything about it, ACLU. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They actually said, yeah, this is racist. This is wrong. This is illegal. But you're not allowed to sue as the voters. So I'm assuming and hoping that the uh, that Attorney General Garland will, will jump in. But, you know, he doesn't make the rulings. It's going to be up to those five injustices that Ugh. Koch put in. Okay. Well, on that cheery note, Greg Palast and I are going to take a break. He is, of course, the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. We're going to be back with more after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by BBC investigative reporter Greg Pallast. He's the author of the New York Times book, the bestseller, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. We're talking about this wacky Eighth Circuit Court ruling that basically gutted the Voting Rights Act and will probably end up before the Supreme Court. And God help us that that moment in time. Greg, a moment ago, you said, you know, now is the time to get up and ring the alarm that it's a you know, it's a five alarm fire. We all have to take action. But what do we do? You know, those of us who are just, you know, sitting in our houses, listening to the radio, what do we do? Well, I'm two things. I want to first say something that's personal for you, for everyone. One of the biggest problems in voting is that people get purged, that is removed from the voter rolls, erased. We have 14 million people a year erased from the voter rolls. Some of them because legitimately they moved, et cetera. But a big hunk of those millions are people who should never be removed. And it might be you. So I'm asking everyone, everyone, about uh, two months before an election, go online. Every state, I know Illinois, Wisconsin has this, where you go online and uh, to your Secretary of State's office. Go online, Secretary of State of Illinois. 
type in, it says, check my registration, check your registration, see if you are still registered. Say, I've been voting for 20 years, same place. Yeah? How many, watch my films, and you'll see people in tears when they show up. And they're told, you can't, you, you're not ready, you know, you, you don't live here. Just like this, you know, you got a career military officer. He's African-American. He wasn't allowed to vote. You show up and you're not allowed to vote. Please. I even checked my, my own in California. And six years ago, I was checking this. Actually, during a radio show, I said, I'm going to check my registration now. And it said, no <laughs> such registration. So I had to re-register. So then you can re-register. So number one, take care of your vote. Tell everyone you know. Check your registration 60 days before the election. Don't show up and get in a fight with the little old lady behind the table. She didn't remove your vote. and They'll give you a provisional ballot, and they're not going to count that. So take care of it now. That's, that's like brushing your teeth. You do that. Now, the other thing to do is put the heat on every politician. I mean, you have some great people like Jan Schakowsky and others in up there in Chicago. Make sure that they are, that they are raising this issue. You know, don't, let them, don't let them do a sneak attack. And please, if you have any opportunity, you want to call, right, whatever, any chance to get to the Justice Department, say, I want Merrick Garland on the front line. Now, I know that the Supreme Court's not exactly happy to see him, but that's exactly why you want him there. So he's got to be in there, and we need the Biden administration to pick up the ball because they're the only ones that are going to be allowed to sue. They need to defend the right of any voter who's been wrong. It's like saying, you know, if you are – if you've robbed a bank only, you know, or if you've been a victim of a, of a theft, you can't, you know, you can't file a complaint. Only if a cop can file the complaint, only if, only if the cops saw the complaint. Well, what do you do? You can't call the cops. This is crazy. It's, it, it's crazy, but it's cruel. And it's so ugly partisan. It's using racist tactics to win elections. And there couldn't be anything less American and uglier. Are these you know, um, and by the way, circuit people, are they lifetime appointments? I have a bad feeling they might be. Yes. Yes. It's a federal judgeship, and therefore it's for life. And that's one of the big problems because the Koch interests, and, and I'm leaning on Koch because he was the one who really started this brilliant idea of why don't we grab the judiciary? This was because he was facing indictments and, and wanted to get out of jail. And he did. Um, Charles Koch. Uh, one of the stories, like I say, I'm doing, as you mentioned, I'm doing a story about, uh, for those who've seen or will see, and I recommend the Killers of the Flower Moon, mm-hmm. uh, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, uh, Leonardo and his dad have, uh, have asked me to make a film, a d- documentary about what's happened to the Osage since the 20s, since the end of Killers of the Flower Moon. And what happened to them is that Koch stole over $2 billion worth of oil from these poor natives. They, they, they stole all their money. They literally stole the oil from the, from the natives. And that's the story I'm writing. But what, and he was indicted. Charlie Koch was personally indicted, was going to face 70 to 80 years in prison. Mm-hmm. I have the indictment. And then he got his buddies, Republican buddies, you remember Bob Dole and Don Nichols, and got them to appoint a new prosecutor in Oklahoma who literally canned, deep-sixed the indictment of Charlie Koch. And this is so, that's when Koch learned, if I own the judiciary, I stay out of prison, I can do what I want, it's a get-out-of-jail card, and he has worked really hard to appoint these federal judges and then the Supremes. 
this is dangerous. This, the Coke coup d'etat seizure of the federal judiciary, and you're seeing this in this Eighth Circuit decision. It's very, very dangerous. And so, by the way, one gift. just the gift what, that what, keeps on giving. Well, I mean, you know, when when you're casting a film, it's hard to cast a documentary. You got what you got. I got some great people like Chief Standing Bear, but I have to say, Coke is the perfect. So I couldn't cast a villain like this. You couldn't make up a, a story like this guy. But if you want to, by the way, get more of this information on how these guys operate. And by the way, the guy that blocked the NAACP is the Attorney General of Arkansas, Tim Griffin. He used to be a federal prosecutor. This is the guy who's supposed to protect you. But he resigned when I exposed him on BBC for votes, vote rustling with Carl Rove. He had to resign as a federal prosecutor. Now he's attorney general, and now he's getting the rights to block you from complaining about voting crimes. And so you can see the film for free now. I put it up on, at gregpalast.com. You can go and download or, or watch online The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, which tells this story. And so it's it's entertaining, by the way, warning. It's um, there's some uh, um, adult language in it. <laughs> That's why it's entertaining. But it's um, uh, you can see the best democracy and money can buy at gregpalace.com. But the important thing here is that you learn these are the tales of how they jack with our voting rights. And now they're saying, well, you can't call the cops because mm. we're, we're we're the only people that can sue ourselves. I mean. I know it's like Kafka-esque, and people don't believe this, but you have to talk to the voting rights attorneys. They're, they're, little, they're just setting their hair on fire. They, they're just scared. They're scared. And it's, and it's terrifying. It, they sh- we should be scared. I mean, this is – I talked about this a little bit, but in the, in the fire hose of everything that was going on around the world, I didn't really yeah. – give this the attention that I know it needed. But frankly, I'm not the only one guilty of that. I mean, I've read a few things about this Eighth Circuit Court decision, and I've seen a few postings. Somebody, right after it happened, somebody posted, well, you know, like, don't don't panic. You know, this doesn't affect the whole country. It just affects a certain number of states. And I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, but isn't that bad, too? And And does that not mean it can't be picked up? But the the tenor of what I read seemed to say this is so over the top. This is so ridiculous that don't you worry your pretty little heads about it, because surely somebody will stop it or undo it. Do you think that's okay, right? I have two, two words for you. Citizens United. Uh. When that case came before the Supreme Court, no one and no one. I'm saying there wasn't a single writer left, right, or center, who said that the court was going to basically say corporations are people, corporations can donate dark money, unlimited. They don't have to disclose it, nothing. No one believed that that would happen. That wasn't even the case. It was, it was a shock, and it was a shock to some of the justices, too, who didn't even know that they were considering that, that matter. So it's a shock. It was a horrible right-wing shock. And so, and only because the decision Roe v. Wade was leaked to overturn Roe, it was a leak, but that was the first time we find out it's going down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what we think is inconceivable, 
Yeah. Well, it's you know, that's why I'm, that's why I'm, I'm really writing this now because, and, and by the way, I'm sorry, if you live in Arkansas, Minnesota, Iowa, North or South Dakota, Nebraska, Missouri, and you don't have the right to protect your vote, you literally don't have the right to sue. You can't do anything. NAACP, ACLU, everyone's knocked out. Rainbow push. You cannot sue uh, for your voting rights. And um, I don't know if I were in those states, I wouldn't be sad to say, well, it's only our states. I'm not too worried. Well, but again, it's chugging towards the Supremes, and they have done some really wild things. I don't take this lightly. Um, and the pro- like I say, one of the problems, I think, in the reporting is that I'm pretty good at breaking down these complex legal things so that you can understand the core. And the, a lot of it, there's just too much jargon. You know, people, what's an eighth circuit? You know, is that an electric switch? You know, it's like, so it's, it's kind of um, complex in the way it's reported, legal reporters. But really, it's simple. If you are shafted out of your vote, you've lost your right to sue to get it back. And the NAACP and all the organizations that protect you are barred from helping you. You're out. You have to beg the people that are shafting you to sue themselves. You want to really go in North Carolina? You just heard, you know, a report from Carolina. That gerrymandering there. Well, you can't do anything about it. And uh, so this is spreading this whole issue, they call it the fancy, again, legal term is private right of action. It just means the voters' right to act, to protect themselves and, and you know, call in, you know, Rainbow Push and, 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 uh, and others to come in and sue for you or you get your own lawyer or whatever. But um, this means that, the, that all our voting rights laws become empty because you can't sue to enforce. Greg, uh, we've got to go. We are uh, at the end of the show. Thank you so much for making sense of this for us and for the call to action. And uh, anytime uh, you want to join us, you are always welcome. It is wonderful to talk to you. Okay, see you at gregpalace.com. And Joan, thank you for letting me truth on them. (laughs) That's going to do it for me. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Have a great evening. Good night.